I'm speaking now with Dr. Benjamin T. Jones, who is Research Fellow in the School of History at the ANU and author of the new book, This Time, Australia's Republican Past and Future. Benjamin, welcome to Subject ACT. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Firstly, the Commonwealth Games is on. As a Republican, how do you view the Commonwealth Games? Uh, The Commonwealth Games are an interesting spectacle. They're a part of Australia's history and almost a hark back to the days of the British Empire. And of course, they're originally the Empire Games. Look, they're a lot of fun, but there's certainly no need for Australia to be a constitutional monarchy to take part in that. And in fact, the majority of competing nations are actually republics. So it's a it's a it's a bit of fun. It's a great sporting event, but there's certainly no need for that to require us to have the Queen of Britain as our head of state. And you were saying off air that um, despite this fact, uh, there was uh, a myth generated by the no case that we would have to leave the Commonwealth. And that myth persists today. Uh, Absolutely. It was it was so uh, pervasive in the in the 1990s that the head of the Commonwealth had to come out and explicitly release a press statement saying that no, Australia will always be welcome as a member of the Commonwealth, regardless of if it becomes a republic. But yeah, unfortunately, that didn't cut through. And it's still one of the arguments Republicans hear a lot is, oh, but we'll lose the Commonwealth Games, which uh, which certainly is not true. And you're also pointing out off air uh, this unusual uh the unusual attire Prince Charles chose to wear to the beach. It wouldn't be uh, an Australian would not approach the beach in a in a suit and tie and, and that sort of thing. It, it just kind of it show, showcases the uh, foreignness of the head of state. Absolutely, yeah. There was a there was a press photo that came out, and maybe you can pop it on your website of uh, of Prince Charles standing there in his tan suit and his leather shoes when he goes out for a day to the beach, and it really just looked like the most British thing, <laughs> the most British aristocratic thing you've ever seen. And I suppose that having Charles over here, it, it is a moment of national reflection. So Australia is hosting a major international sporting event. And why is it not either the Governor General, who under a republic could act as our head of state, or why is it not the Prime Minister, the democratically elected leader, opening it? Instead, we're still looking to a to a foreign. And I keep using the word foreign because that is what Britain is. And that's mm. not just me as a Republican trying to emphasise the separateness in 1990. 19- 98, the High Court ruled that Britain is a foreign power. This is why we had the citizenship uh, fiasco that's mm, still going mm, on mm. and all these dual citizens being uh, being kicked out. So the High Court has ruled Britain is a foreign power. Mm. And so what self-respecting country says, well, we're not good enough to have our own leaders. We're not good enough to have our own head of state. We need to borrow one from a foreign power. Well, even, and you mentioned this in the book, even John Howard, when it came time to opening the Sydney Olympic Games, thought it was inappropriate for the Queen, our head of state to open the games, despite him being a devout monarchist. Yeah, Howard is a funny one in many ways. I really can't quite put my finger on it. Neither can Malcolm Turnbull, incidentally, who wrote about his uh, very frustrating meetings with him when Howard, uh, when Turnbull rather used to be the head of the Australian Republican movement. Howard, in many ways, is a pragmatist. And it should be remembered that 
the referendum wasn't just to become a republic. There were two questions, one to become a republic and two to update the preamble, preamble yep. and get rid of a lot of the monarchist language and have stuff about our democracy and mateship. And Howard was actually for that. So on the one hand, mm. he did acknowledge that our current constitution and the wording was out of date. And when the Olympics came, he said, no, it would look bad if Australia is putting itself on the international stage and then looks to the Queen, who is so much more associated with Britain than she is with Australia. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, he had those ideas, but then on the other hand, he still absolutely resolutely said, no, we, we can't become a Republic. We need to keep the queen. So, mm. uh, so, so go figure. He's a, he's a bit of a riddle wrapped in a mystery <laughs> there. Um, a lot of time, uh, a lot of the time that I bring up the Republic, uh, a lot of people say, oh, you know, what difference does it make? It's kind of just a symbolic issue. But um, news came out that uh, we forked out 100 grand to bring Charles and Camilla over here. Are there other material costs that, um, that aren't widely reported on in maintaining a constitutional monarchy? Uh, there's, there's few. Whenever a, uh, a visiting royal comes over, Australia does foot the bill for that. But certainly the largest financial burden is on the British taxpayer okay, yeah, who absolutely. fork out uh, something in the order of 65 to 80 million pounds. The figures are always contested a year. Um, so, no, Australia doesn't pay a huge amount, but Australia wouldn't pay a huge amount either to be a republic. We would have a head of state, something similar to the governor general and his or her uh, costs would would happen. But it's interesting that you were saying people call it just a symbolic thing, as if symbols don't matter mm. and as if ideals don't matter and values don't matter. And this is something we try to teach our children and in schools we try to uh, we try to teach them that uh, democracy is important, that fair play is important, that everyone getting an equal go is important. And in Australia, we particularly make the point that democracy is important, that everyone being heard is important. And if these values, and especially egalitarian, which is sort of the mythical Australian mm -hmm. cherished value, unlike class-ridden uh, England, the England yeah, yeah. that we're the country where Jack's as good as his master and uh, anyone can rise to the top based on your talent and your own what, what you give. It's just out of step to say, but our highest position we just give on purely on hereditary title mm. rather than having the best woman or the best man for the job. And it's discriminatory. Uh, um, they've sort of updated it. Historically, it's been a very sexist institution. Mm. Uh, there's religious discrimination yeah. woven yeah. into how monarchy works as well. So it's a it's a pretty un-Australian thing if you take an orthodox view of what we say our values yeah. are. Yeah. Um, and on the point of symbolism, some people that you talk to that if you bring up Australia Day, we'll get really fired up and talk about how it's, it's celebrating the dispossession of Indigenous Australia and such. And yet, if you bring up the crown, it's kind of like, oh, what difference does it make? It's just a symbol. Is, is the crown seen as benign now? Like, w what's happened that the crown... Because the crown used to be seen as uh, uh, a symbol of uh, authoritarianism and things like that. 
Well, it used to be a unifying symbol. So right, there was right, yeah. this idea that you have your political parties and you and and they're always arguing and you may be on the left or the right or wherever, but we can all agree that we've got the crown mm. that brings us all together. But the thing is, this was the British crown and that brought us all together as Britons. So when Australians thought of themselves as Australian Britons, then the crown was a completely appropriate symbol. And we could say, well, for all our differences between Liberal and Labor, or even between Australians and Canadians and New Zealanders, the one thing we've got in common is our attachment to the Crown and to the British race. And the word race is what was used in the first half of the 20th century. So historically, having uh, the British Crown made a lot of sense. Mm. But somewhere around the 1960s, when the British Empire broke up and Australia started for the first time to see itself as an independent, multicultural nation in the Asia-Pacific region, when we got rid of the white Australia policy and said we no longer define ourselves as a white British enclave, that really was the time to think about becoming a republic. And so we've sort of slowly been taking steps over the decades. We eventually changed uh, changed the anthem and we changed uh, the Australia Acts change that we can't uh, appeal to the Privy Council anymore. So we've taken these incremental steps. And so the visibility of the crown has gone smaller and smaller to today. It's sort of something people don't think about anymore. Mm -hmm. But I, I think if you really care about Australia, you're obliged to actually think about it, think about the values that our system has. Yeah. Um, so back on the point about the crown, you were saying it was a unifying symbol, but the agitation for republicanism was driven by those excluded from quote-unquote, the British race, right? Like the Irish, for instance, were uh, huge agitators for republicanism in the 1800s and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and, and of course, you've got Indigenous Australians oh, yeah, as, as well who yep. were always outside of the narrative of the uh, of the British race and you've got other immigrant groups as well. But even people of, of white European British heritage, uh, certainly after the 1960s, mm. they identify as Australians rather than as Britons. So it's it's no longer the unifying symbol it used to be. The big argument for it was it brought us all together because we were all equally devoted to the British crown. And even though the referendum in 1999 failed, it was a 55-45 split. So the argument can't be made anymore that the crown unifies us. In fact, the fact that we debate this and argue about this all the time mm. kind of uh, underlines the fact that it no longer is a unifying symbol of mm. Australianness. It may still be a unifying symbol of Britishness, but that's a question for the British people. You're on Subject ACT on 2XX 98.3 FM. I'm Nathan Goobler, and I'm currently in conversation with Dr. Benjamin T. Jones, who is author of the new book, This Time, Australia's Republican Past and Future. You mentioned in the book that you missed your eligibility to vote in the referendum by one year. When, when was your yeah, Republican awakening? <laughs> Yeah, well, it probably was in that uh, intense atmosphere in the 90s when everyone was talking about it. And it wasn't even one year, it was a few months and I was quite fired up. And I suppose uh, I, I was quite a conservative growing up in most of my politics, but I was quite devoted to Australia and very uh, patriotic. And I loved things like the Olympics and the World Cup and these things where nations compete. Mm -hmm. And I just have always found it an anomaly that Australia doesn't seem to be quite on 
on the same status as other nations because whereas other nations have their own flag and other nations have their own head of state democratically chosen, we're still borrowing one from Britain and borrowing a quarter of our flag from Britain as well. Mm. So, yeah, uh, being a 17-year-old in 1999 was not fun because uh, <laughs> you're at that age where you're nearly an adult and you do have political ideas yeah, and you do have opinions, but you're not quite able to mm. execute it. So, But it's interesting to think now because it's almost 20 years ago. So pretty much anyone uh, born after 1982, of which obviously there's millions and millions and growing, have never had a say either in a plebiscite or a referendum. So mm. I think that's why it's worth coming back to this issue again. Mm, absolutely. Um, after the publication of your book, uh, I guess it's been a few months later, there's been increasing commentary and particularly what comes to mind is the latest quarterly essay by Mark McKenna, uh, Moment of Truth, that seems to say that uh, calling for a republic has to unite with uh, the demands of the Uluru Statement from the heart. Do you, do you think that um, bringing... Uh, the Indigenous question, uh, the treaty and uh, Makarata and all, all those sorts of things, do you think that will strengthen the Republican movement or do you think that could be another wedge that might divide the movement, much like the uh, question of uh, parliamentarily elected president or direct electionists? Yeah, well, strictly speaking, they are different questions, but I agree with Mark McKenna that they should be looked at at the same time. If you're going to sit down and think, what are the symbols we want to represent Australia? And particularly if we're replacing old British imperial symbols, where do we look then for new symbols? Mm. And I think the the very obvious answer is the 65,000 years civilizations that we already have on this continent. So there was a view back in 1999 that the Republic should be absolutely divorced from anything else because it could become too complicated. But I think Australians are mature enough and nuanced enough mm. to, to look at these two issues side by side. So in the book, I, I sort of allow for both views. I say why Australia should become a republic, in my opinion, but I offer some ideas also about how symbolically we could move towards reconciliation. One, and this isn't something that would be in the referendum because it's not in the constitution, but one is re-looking, uh, taking another look at our anthem and perhaps like New Zealand having some lyrics in English and some in either an Indigenous language or a few different Indigenous languages mm. as a very practical step towards reconciliation and the title of the head of state, for example, we could use the very banal, generic and American sounding president. Uh, we could keep governor general, which uh, people know what it is, but it's very imperial and British sounding. Mm -hmm. I suggest in the book Bayana Elder, which is a combination uh, of an indigenous word and an English word, and it has deep historical uh, connotations in mm. it because it's the word that Benelong gave to gave to Philip Biana, uh, meaning uh, something like an authority figure, but not actually the chief. So mm. it uh, it actually quite nicely sums up what a head of state does. They're a position of great honour, but they're not the prime minister, the day to day running. Yeah, so elder evokes a ceremonial, uh, a person of wisdom as opposed to a president. Which, like you say, a lot of people. They watch a lot of TV, watch a lot of the West Wing and think that the president is just going to um, throw their weight around. Absolutely. And it's a word that has significance in both English and in uh, Indigenous culture as well. So I think there are lots of ways where we can combine the Republic and reconciliation. 
Um, another uh, really interesting point in your book this time, Australia's Republican Past and Future, is um, what you call the Jones-Pickering model of election, uh, which satisfies, as, well, it tries to unite as much as possible the uh, the direct electionist model where the people get to vote for the, the president or the head of state and uh, those who find that that could have a number of significant risks. Yeah, so... In 1999, the Republic really was sunk, not by monarchists, but by other Republicans Mm. who voted no. So specifically Republicans who demanded a direct election voted no, and they had two chief complaints. One, there was no popular vote, and two, it consolidated power in Canberra. So while seeing that the minimalists had a very strong argument of saying, if you just throw it open to everyone, you're going to get the type of ambitious people who want power rather than if you appoint someone, you can just go out and see who's doing wonderful charity work, who are our uh, really sort of noble people like the current governor general, like past governor generals, who are the type of people we'd want to honour. So it takes a two-part process. Firstly, each state and territory nominate someone with a two-third majority of parliament, so it's not going to be partisan. Liberal and Labor need to come together and identify a worthy Australian. And so it takes advantage of our existing federal thing. It's not going to be dominated by New South Wales or Victoria. Each state and territory nominate. So the country then gets eight nominees, and then it goes to a public vote. So there's twin hurdles. Firstly, you need to be the type of Australian who is doing sterling work and who is going to represent the country with dignity and honour as judged by our democratic representatives in the state and territory parliaments. And then the second tick of approval is that the Australian people also vote for that person. So I think if you if you can tick those two boxes, you probably are a very worthy candidate. And I think with all respect to the British royal family, I think an Australian who has been doubly endorsed democratically, Mm. first by the parliaments, second by the people, are going to do a better job at representing Australia Mm. than than the Queen or or her uh, sons and grandchildren. Um, We've talked a little bit about some of the apathy that the Republic question is kind of met with with some people. Um, Peter Fitzsimons, for instance makes appeals to people's patriotism, which is entirely fine, but a lot of people also are very sceptical of patriotic and nationalist feelings. So how do we get those sorts of people to become more concerned with the issue? Well, it is difficult, and in a sense, you almost have to pitch it differently if you're dealing with conservatives or uh, more progressive people. Mm -hmm. A lot of progressive people, as you say, they get very cautious about Mm. uh, patriotism because they see a direct line between that and xenophobia and you know, flag waving and isolation all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I suppose that's where McKenna's argument that this could be a really important and significant, meaningful way to combine it with reconciliation Mm, is mm. something that may snap more progressive people out of their their apathy. Mm, mm. Just another history question. Um, Other than the 99 referendum, uh, what other times has Australia been close to becoming a republic? Well, it's a difficult historical question. I posit in the book that in 1852... New South Wales, at least, came close. And some historians may say, well, it wasn't 
it wasn't that close, but at least it was being talked about. So in 1852, Jun Dun Mulang released a book called Freedom and Independence for the Golden Lands of Australia. And this is before New South Wales had a democratic or a fully democratic constitution. And this is before responsible government. New South Wales were allowed by the uh, British government to draft their own constitution. And Lang was essentially saying, if we're going to do this, let's just go the whole hog and become a republic. Mm-hmm. And he put the argument out that this is not anti-British. And it's interesting that uh, 150 years later, that's still what Republicans are saying. It's not that we hate Britain or want to deny any link with Britain, but just the point of colonisation is you start a society, you help them get on their feet. This is a very idealised uh you know, British colonisation vision, mm. but that that's what was being spoken of in 1852. But the idea is when you're uh, mature enough and able to look after your own interests, then you should become independent. And he pointed out things like once the United States became independent, trade between Britain and the United States actually increased and Britain actually became even wealthier for not having to treat them like children and have British governors. And so the argument was the same should apply to Australia. Mm. And it you know, it, it did gain some traction, but back in 1852, uh, white Australians identified so strongly as British that, mm, mm. Uh, although it's interesting to see that the reactions to Lang weren't that, oh, this is a crazy Republican, what a terrible idea, but it was more perhaps later. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald right. said, perhaps when our nation is in the millions. And the British press as well said, well, we don't think you're quite there yet. And yes, mm. it probably will happen, but you're jumping the gun there. So it's interesting that the 19th century audience was actually reasonably open to the idea of an Australian mm. Republic as well. And just said, well, we just need to put it off for a bit. Yeah. But now that it's been put off for 150 years, I think maybe, you know. Well, you mentioned <laughs> that that's the uh, poison chalice of the Republic movement that like, oh, you know, we just need to resolve this first. We just need to resolve that first. Absolutely. And also when you say something's inevitable, it makes people think, oh, well, I don't need to try then. I don't need to put any effort into it. Mm. So the Republic is waiting for a generation of Australians who are passionate enough to do the hard work and who care enough about the values and the principles that the nation is founded on that they're going to actually say, you know what, I'm moving this up from... Uh, from, you know, item seven or eight on the (laughs) national agenda to this is something we should think about. And, you know, and maybe maybe we are now living through those exciting times. Mm. People can only imagine, Americans can only imagine what it was like to be there in 1776 at, you know, Mm. when these immortal words have been written, the founding of the Constitution. But we actually can live through those times in Mm. Australia and we can put our opinions forward and say, what should the preamble say? What should the flag look like? What day should we celebrate as Australia Day? Mm. So there's a whole suite of things we can actually think about apart from just saying we should replace the Australian head of state, um, uh, the British head of state rather, with an Australian and just leave it at that. We can really look quite deeply about what kind of nation we want to be for the next century, for the next two centuries. Mm. So it's a, uh, you know, the hand of history is on our shoulders. Mm. We really have a chance to do something quite significant. So I hope it gets over the line. Yeah, it certainly feels like we're in those times. Benjamin T. Jones, thanks so much for speaking to us. How can people uh, help out with the Republic push and also get a copy of your book? Well, uh, the book is called This Time, Australia's Republican Past and Future. If you pop that into Google, it should uh, show you where you can get it. You can order it online or in the Kindle. In terms of the Republic, the best practical thing you can do is start a conversation because people 
don't think about this unless they're prompted. Mm. So the Commonwealth Games at the moment on is a perfect uh, in to start these conversations. Do you think it should be Prince Charles who's over here opening a great Australian event? Should that instead be an Australian representing us? What do you think? And obviously the Australian Republican movement is the largest uh, lobby group. And if you want to uh, take part in the meetings, it's very cheap to join. And uh, if you want to actually start putting forward your model Model and your flag idea and your preamble and all those mm. sorts of things. So there's there's a few ways you can get involved. I think with the royal wedding coming up as well, this uh, topic isn't going away anytime soon. Benjamin T. Jones, thanks so much for speaking to us on Subject ACT. Thank you.